Thanks for joining me and welcome back to another episode of Star Spangled Shadows, part of InnovativeHistory.com. My name is Bryant and I'll be your host as we try to answer an important yet seemingly random question today. The question, did a game of lacrosse spark the American Revolution? You see, back in 1763, the British government laid out the Royal Proclamation of 1763 upon the American colonies. This proclamation forbade any settlement of British citizens west of the Appalachian Mountains. With a growing population, a lack of land, and no voice in the British government, this decision angered many colonists and is often cited as one of the main reasons for the American Revolution. But how did a lacrosse game influence the colonies in their decision to revolt against Great Britain? To find out, we'll be taking this podcast all the way back to 1754, where we'll be talking about the French and Indian War, or Seven Years' War. But to get there, first, we'll be talking about sports. After all, sports have had a huge impact on American history. Think about iconic events like Jesse Owens winning four gold medals in the 1936 Olympics, in Germany, during the rise of Hitler, and the 1980 Miracle on Ice and its significance within the Cold War, and how people still cheer when we beat Russians in hockey, or even the fact that American grenades are modeled after a regulation-sized baseball. Because, hey, every kid in America should know how to throw a baseball, right? And yes, they have tried making football-shaped grenades, didn't work out so well. With the popularity of football, baseball, and basketball, some sports seem to get pushed by the wayside. However, America's oldest sport, lacrosse, is starting to regain some of its momentum and popularity these days. You've seen the sport, or maybe even played it as a kid. But why has one lacrosse game had such a huge impact on the history of America? I'll get to that momentarily, but first, let me give you a quick background about lacrosse. Okay, so I'll be perfectly honest. I know very little about the way lacrosse is played today. Fortunately for you, though, I looked up a few things about modern lacrosse for this podcast. Here's what I thought was significant. There are two teams, with ten players on each side. The game is typically divided into four quarters, and the point of the game is to get more balls into your opponent's goal than they get into yours. And now you know how to play lacrosse. Jokes aside, what I found most interesting was actually the fouls that can be committed in lacrosse. The following are personal fouls. Slashing, tripping, cross-checking, unsportsmanlike conduct, unnecessary roughness, illegal body-checking, and having illegal sticks or illegal equipment. Why did I find these fouls interesting? Well, because unlike our modern version of lacrosse, the early Native American game didn't have any fouls. In fact, in most instances, it was considered cheating or cowardly to dodge contact from an opponent or even to pass the ball. The early sticks were basically big giant spoons carved out of wood and weren't great for passing anyways. So as you can probably imagine, most of the early lacrosse games probably turned into something that looked more like a giant rugby scrum than a lacrosse game. On top of that, there were just a touch more players on the field back in those days. Historic references suggest that the games often had up to 500, 1,000, or even two entire tribes that played against each other. These games were massive events that really must have looked like a giant battlefield. Unsurprisingly, the game was often called Little War, or Little Brother of War, as translated from the original native names. And these names were fitting. The rituals that preceded these lacrosse games were very war-esque. In certain cases, the games could be used in place of actual war, with the winners taking spoils through bets and wagering, 
or maybe even playing the game in order to settle some conflict off the battlefield. Winner take all. It was also a great way to train and harden young warriors without putting them on an actual battlefield. Even if this wasn't a real war though, it was as close as you could get to the real thing. The players would don their raiding attire, which included face and body paint and other ornamental accessories. Medicine men would host rituals the night before. Lacrostics were often even considered as sacred as an actual war weapon. Historical sources suggest that many Native Americans were buried with their sticks. These lacrostics were actually weapons though. I mean, think about it. Even modern lacrosse games can result in blood, broken bones, or injury, and perhaps even an occasional death. Early native lacrosse games were even worse. There were no helmets or pads, and certainly tons of violence, if not death, would have been commonplace on the fields. The sticks were probably necessary to defend yourself. Around the year 1900, lacrosse was actually banned in some areas of the United States, mainly because a group of Oklahoma Choctaw Indians were caught attaching lead weights to their sticks, so that they could literally crack a few skulls of their opponents during the game. The Native American version of lacrosse tested your physical and mental toughness. Along with having a massive number of players, these early games also had massive fields. The fields could stretch for just a few hundred yards or even as far as a few miles, and the games might last from sunrise to sunset. The goal of the game was still pretty simple though. You wanted the ball to reach the other team's goal. This was typically a designated tree or rock, and later on became elaborate poles with different levels of scoring depending on where the ball hit. The early balls were made from wood, deerskin, or perhaps rodent skulls. If you're familiar with the whole human head as the ball legend, that probably comes from Central America and was most likely a reference to a game that was more like field hockey, not lacrosse. Lacrosse was mainly played in North America, specifically around the Great Lakes region, the East Coast, and the American South. The earliest evidence of lacrosse being played by Native Americans dates all the way back to the 1630s. A group of French Jesuit missionaries witnessed the game, and they didn't like it one bit mainly because it was essentially based on all the fun things that the missionaries wanted to get rid of, like violence, gambling, and heathen ritualism. If it wasn't reading the Bible, I'm pretty sure they didn't approve. The French missionaries did, however, give lacrosse its name. The name lacrosse most likely either comes from one of two places. First, it could have been a French reference to field hockey, and pardon my French, but the original phrase is le jeu de lacrosse. Secondly, and as I prefer it, it's a reference to the Christian cross. This idea stems from the fact that the Jesuits might have thought that the natives looked like little popes running around holding their cross staffs up in the air, i.e. lacrosse sticks. It might have made sense though. Missionaries often tried to use references to Christianity as a way to bridge the gap between two cultures. Regardless, the French missionaries did not like the game, even if it did remind them of Catholic clergymen. So now that you have a brief background on lacrosse, let's start working our way toward the one lacrosse game that might have sparked the American Revolution. To do so, we will actually need to keep talking about the French. As you probably know, just before the American Revolution, the colonies and the British were teaming up against French and Native American forces. The conflict was known as the French and Indian War in the Americas and the Seven Years' War in Europe. The Seven Years' War was a global conflict. It was a world war before they even called it that. It was fought between 1754 and 1763. And for those of you keeping score at home, yes, that is nine years, but it's called the Seven Years' War because the main fighting took place from 1756 to 1763. It involved all the European powers at the time and spanned five continents. Fighting took place in Europe, 
the Americas, West Africa, India, and the Philippines. In the war, the Kingdom of France, along with Austria, Russia, Spain, and Sweden, faced off against the Kingdom of Great Britain and their friends, Prussia, Portugal, and Hanover. So two years before the main fighting took place in Europe, back in 1754, the French natives and colonists were already engaged in the conflict. But the main fighting of the war dealt with Austria's desire to recover Silesia from the Prussians. France jumped in to join their old rivals Austria, mainly because they wanted to slow down British growth. They saw the British as rivals to their world dominance. Ironically, the British ended up gaining the most from the war, and this led to a rise of British power. So back in North America, I just want to point out that it's somewhat problematic that American history tends to refer to this war as the French and Indian War. It sort of makes it seem like all the Indians sided with France in the conflict. That just wasn't the case, though. Although the French were better at making Native American friends, there were plenty of Native American tribes who saw this as a chance to gain or lose power depending on who won the war. It was basically a gamble. If they sided with France, and France lost, they would lose power. If they sided with the British colonists, and they won, they might gain power. France was better at building relationships with the Native Americans, mainly because of numbers. You see, France had a lot less colonists in the New World than Great Britain did. Because of this, the French tended to garner better relationships with the Indians. They didn't have vast towns that needed a lot of land to house their population, which meant they didn't need to force Native Americans off of their land. Furthermore, they also tended to need the Native Americans to survive. With less people around, the French also needed people to trade with. And let's also not forget that there were a lot of French men in the Americas, but not so many French women in the colonies. And these monsieurs didn't want to be cold and alone up in the Canadian wilderness. So oftentimes, French settlers would take Native American wives. This was a surefire way to build a trusting relationship with Native tribes. Many French colonists would marry the daughters of chiefs and thus cement a strong relationship. So along with intermarriage, another key to a good relationship with many Native American tribes was paying tribute. Basically, French settlers would give the natives different goods. The chiefs would then take these goods and distribute them amongst the people. The tribes would then be happy with the chief, and the chief could then continue to cultivate strong relationships, so long as he had power. The more goods he had, the happier his people were. The more power he had, the stronger relationship he could build with the French. But intermarriage and paying tribute weren't the only things that led to intermingling of colonists and natives. I'll briefly mention an aspect of the Native American lifestyle, at least within some tribes, that I found really interesting back when I studied this information back in college. So the French tended to actively cultivate relationships at least better than the British did, but British colonists also found themselves amongst the native populace as well. Some, like the French, actively cultivated relationships under their own agency or through marriage, but others didn't have this choice. You see, in Native American raids or battles, there was always the possibility of collateral damage. Civilians could easily get caught up in the crossfire and end up as casualties. In certain cases, however, the different sides would capture civilians from their enemy, male or female, and likely a broad range in ages. So if your Aunt Sally happened to have been killed in the melee, no worries, you would go find a captive from your enemy that could best replace Aunt Sally. You would then adopt this captive into your family, and she would basically become a replacement for your deceased aunt. This was really important because in most cases, the tribe members had designated roles and tasks that they were in charge of. So if you lost a family member, you actually lost a piece of the workforce. You had to go and replace that person. Even more interesting 
was that these newly adopted tribe members often had to prove that they were even worthy of joining the tribe. To do so, many were made to run the gauntlet. The adopting tribe would line up its members across from each other, forming a gauntlet, or a human hallway. Each tribe member was fitted with a stick, not a lacrosse stick in this case, but probably something a bit heavier. The adoptee would then have to run through the gauntlet, through a barrage of beatings, and make it out the other side. If the runner was sick or wounded or took a blow to the head and fell short, they could be beaten to death. Once joined as a member of the tribe, though, they were essentially given all rights that any other tribe member would have. Of course, this wasn't just an example of Native Americans adopting Native Americans into their tribes. English colonists often found their way into running the gauntlet as well. In many cases, especially for children, these colonists found it very hard to assimilate back into European lifestyle if they had once been a part of the Native American tribe. This was the case for many captives who were released after the French and Indian War and Pontiac's Rebellion, which we'll talk about momentarily. All in all, with this brief anecdote, I just wanted to point out that both the French and the English were, at least in certain cases, able to build relationships with Native Americans or were somehow involved in the Native American lifestyle, whether they liked it or not. All in all, the French were just better at building these relationships. As the French colonies grew, however, their expansion from Canada into the Ohio River Valley repeatedly brought them into conflict with the claims of the British colonies, especially Virginia. So as these colonists overlapped, conflict broke out. In the first couple of years of the French and Indian War, the French actually dominated the American colonies. This was ironic considering the British colonies numbered somewhere between 1.5 million and 2 million in population, and the French were probably hovering around 100,000. The French outmaneuvered George Washington back when he was a British soldier. They defeated the leader of the British troops, General Braddock. They actually killed him and even won against Braddock's successor, Governor Shirley of Massachusetts. Shirley was actually so concerned about the French that in 1755, he took all of the French settlers who happened to live in British Nova Scotia and expelled hundreds of them to random British colonies. As you might imagine, these foreigners weren't treated well. But finally, the tide started to turn in favor of the British and their colonies in 1757, mainly because of William Pitt, who became the new British leader. He viewed the French and Indian War as a cornerstone to building a vast British empire. He believed that if Britain could defend her colonies abroad, then she could build her strength up across the world, not just at home. He started taking loans to finance the war. He even paid Prussia to fight his battles in Europe. He also reimbursed the colonies for raising troops in North America. Of course, this would eventually have to be paid back by the colonies. Most of that whole taxation without representation mantra actually comes about because Britain wanted to tax the colonies for their French and Indian War expenses. With William Pitt's increased finances, though, finally, in July 1758, the British won their first great victory in the Americas. A month later, they were closing in on Quebec. And so the French resistance in North America waned. Montreal fell to the British in 1760, and the French lost all hope of resisting the British takeover of North America. Ironically, Spain eventually joined France against England in the Seven Years' War. In response, the British Empire did everything in its power to steal away territory not only from France, but also from Spain. During the Treaty of Paris in 1763, which ended the Seven Years' War, the British took all of Canada from France and also gained the territory of Florida from Spain. They left France with a few small West Indian sugar islands, and France somehow was able to barter with Great Britain and keep Louisiana, although they then turned around and gave to Spain as a payment for their help during the war. 
Ultimately, this treaty removed the American colonies' rivals to both the North and the South in North America, and completely opened up the opportunity for westward expansion. Or at least so the colonists thought. The year 1763 might have marked the end to the French and Indian War and Seven Years' War, but this year also happens to mark the event of our fabled lacrosse game as well. You see, many Native Americans were upset that the British had pushed out their French allies during the war. I mentioned that the French tended to befriend and trade with Native Americans, whereas the British tended to try and take and settle the Native Americans' land, and so on. Needless to say, the Natives were overwhelmingly unhappy with the British at this time. In response to the disdain for the British, a movement broke out amongst Native Americans residing in the Great Lakes region. It was known as Pontiac's War, or Pontiac's Rebellion. Pontiac was a leader within the Ottawa tribe, and the war began in May of 1763, when he and 300 followers attempted to take Fort Detroit from the British garrison that was holding it. His plan was foiled. Meanwhile, messengers spread the word of Pontiac's actions throughout Indian tribes in the area, and the war expanded far beyond Detroit. In July 1763, Pontiac was able to defeat a British detachment at the Battle of Bloody Run, but he was never able to actually capture the fort, so his influence kind of died off. But it wasn't ever really Pontiac who was inspiring Native Americans. It was actually more like a good old Christian tent revival that sparked Pontiac's war in the first place. You see, there was a Native American named Neolin, who became the focal figure for a rise in Native religion of the time. He was more or less a Native American prophet. You see, God, or the Master of Life, as Neolin called him, came to him in a dream. In conversation with the Master of Life, Neolin was told that he and his fellow natives were really making the Master of Life unhappy. He cited their addiction to the white man's alcohol and was fed up with Indian polygamy, hated their sexual promiscuity, and wanted to get rid of witchcraft. Unsurprisingly, though, the worst thing he thought the Native Americans were doing was giving up their land to the white invaders. The master assured Neolin that he would restore the lands with wild game and longevity if the Indians were able to resist this European invasion. The master of life then told him the path to heaven. It could only be achieved by rejecting the Europeans and returning to their ancestral ways. Like the French Jesuits, Neolin wanted to take away all the fun stuff. No more sexual promiscuity or alcohol for the Indians, and it only seems logical then that he was probably influenced by some of the French teachings, but who knows to what degree. Regardless, inspired by Neolin's visions and Pontiac's initial rebellion, native warriors from many tribes joined together in an attempt to drive the British out of the region. To accomplish this, these natives started trying to take over British forts all across the Great Lakes. Back in those days, news didn't travel fast for the British. So even though Pontiac had attacked the fort in Detroit, the other forts in that area would have no clue of the incident for quite some time. Between May 16th and June 2nd, 1763, natives were able to capture five British forts through surprise attacks. These forts included Fort Sandusky in modern-day Venice, Ohio, where on May 16th, 1763, only a few days after the British Detroit siege, some warriors from the Wyandotte tribe came up to the fort saying they wanted to hold a council meeting to talk about peace in the region with these British soldiers. Once allowed inside, they seized the commander and killed the other 15 soldiers as well as all the British traders in the fort, and then proceeded to richly scalp the dead and leave them there. Next was Fort St. Joseph in modern-day Niles, Michigan. Here, the Potawatomis seized the fort in the same manner as the Wyandots. They then killed the 15-man garrison inside. After that was Fort Miami in modern-day Wayne, Indiana. This one happened a little differently. 
the commander of Fort Miami happened to have a sneaky little mistress amongst his Native American rivals. She lured him out of the fort under the pretense of maybe having a little sexy time, and he was shot dead by a warrior of the Miami tribe. The nine soldiers that remained in the fort then immediately surrendered. Only a few days later, on June 1st, natives also took Fort Uwiatonin around modern-day Lafayette, Indiana. This fort was also captured in somewhat of a different manner. The soldiers were let out of the fort under a guise of a council, but this time no one was actually killed. The Ways, Kickapoos, and Muscatan Indians actually really liked these soldiers that lived in the fort. Some might go so far to say that they were friends, so the natives politely told the soldiers that they'd be borrowing their fort for a bit because they were commanded to do so by neighboring tribes. While not clear, they might have done this just as a necessary way to protect the soldiers from being attacked by other native tribes. Lastly, and most interestingly, we have the capture of Fort Michel Mackinac, modern-day Mackinac City, Michigan. This was the largest and most important fort, and also brought the most humiliation to the British. On June 2, 1763, the Chippewa tribe pulled off a deke, as they might call it in lacrosse, on Fort Michel Mackinac. As you might guess, the tribe staged a traditional lacrosse game. Where else to host a lacrosse game but directly in front of your former enemy's fort? The Chippewas called the game, and I'm going to butcher this, but Baga Adoe, or bumping hips, as it might translate to English. And boy, did they ever bump some hips in this game. They invited another tribe, the Sox, to be their opponent. Best of all, they even sent a friendly invitation to the British garrison at Fort Michel Mackinac. So the fort joined them in watching the game and wagering on the outcome. Just to put the cherry on top, the two tribes even went so far as to say that the game would be in honor of King George III's upcoming birthday. Man, what loyal subjects they were. The British commander in charge of the fort, Major Etherington, was completely smitten by the invitation. So he and his men watched the game from the nearby fort. Each of the tribes put over 100 warriors on the teams and began to play. The game intensified, and the two tribes fiercely combated each other, to the pleasure of the British garrison. The women of the tribes even gathered in front of the fort to watch. Even though it was summertime, and must have been hovering around 80 or 90 degrees Fahrenheit, the women all donned coats and animal skins, and they placed themselves at the base of the fort. Their guys, they were using the shadows of the fort as shade. The British seemed not to notice, though. Caught up in the action, the British troops never closed the gate to the fort. Rookie mistake. As the game went on, an errant smack of the ball helped it find its way right through the front door of the fort. As the warriors laid chase, the women of the tribe quickly stepped out of the shadows and pulled tomahawks and knives from under their coats and handed them off as the warriors ran through the fort gate. The warriors laid siege to the fort, capturing it and killing almost every British soldier and colonist inside. It must have been an absolute massacre. At the time, there were still some French colonists who remained there even after the French and Indian War. The natives, however, left the French citizens unharmed. The tribes held the fort for almost a year, but even with their bold triumph, Pontiac's war ended in a stalemate. Stalemate aside, the Native Americans were able to gain one major victory through the outcome of the war. The British government had been considering a proclamation that would keep colonists from settling in the western British territories of America. Pontiac's war hastened this decision and likely had an impact on the British Royal Proclamation of 1763. As I mentioned at the beginning, this proclamation was one of the major grievances that led to the American Revolution. The American colonies had just spent a lot of their own resources, troops, and time defeating the French in the French and Indian War. Their main purpose for doing so was so that they would have more land to settle. In fact, one of the payments soldiers received was grants to westward land. 
By laying out this proclamation, these thoughts and dreams were dashed. Obviously, this angered the colonists. The Royal Proclamation of 1763 was perhaps the first moment of strife in which the colonists began to question their allegiance to the motherland. So, as I mentioned, the La Crosse Massacre at Fort Michel Mackinac was the biggest blunder by the British after 1763, and this violence by the natives was one of the things that the British government pointed to in the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Going all the way back to our initial question, did this lacrosse game spark the American Revolution? Personally, I think there's definitely enough evidence to at least say that it did have some influence on the revolution. However, many historians do actually disagree with this statement. Most will cite the fact that the Royal Proclamation of 1763 was already in the works even before this lacrosse game. If anything, the game just hastened the signing of this proclamation. But all things said and done, next time you catch a lacrosse game and you see a big hit, I bet you'll stop and say to yourself, eh, it could always be worse. And whether or not a lacrosse game did spark the American Revolution, it's still an amazing piece of American history, and as always, it's definitely worth bringing out of the shadows. Thank you for listening. Please, please do me a favor and rate this podcast. Also, feel free to drop by innovativehistory.com slash starspangledshadows and let me know what you think. You can also reach me at bryant, B-R-Y-A-N-T, at innovativehistory.com. Lastly, please join me next time as we talk about World War I, Wisconsin, and a Bible printed in the 1800s that I found at an estate sale. I'll let you know what had been tucked away for almost 100 years. 